on average ballpark cows have a, a reasonable resilience to one clinical disease. However, if they had more than one clinical disease, their probability of pregnancy really took a nosedive. Welcome back, everyone, to the Dairy Science Digest. This is a podcast designed to bring the Journal of Dairy Science straight to the ears of dairy producers. I'm Reagan Bluell from the University of Missouri Dairy Team, and today we're meeting with Dr. Stephen LeBlanc from the University of Guelph in Canada. He's a veterinarian as well as a researcher with a passion to better understand the reproductive challenges of, of dairy cattle. And his research really zooms in on the interactions of the cow's energy status, the reproductive physiology, and your management and ties it all back to the economics of production. Because we know that early pregnancy loss definitely impacts the economics of a dairy farm. So today he's here to talk to us about a Journal of Dairy Science article that he and his team recently released titled, The Associations of Inflammation and Reproductive Tract Disorders Postpartum with Pregnancy and Early Pregnancy Loss in Dairy Cattle. So. Welcome, Dr. LeBlanc, to Dairy Science Digest. And before we get going, could you please tell your audience a little bit about yourself and maybe your team? Yeah, as you said in the introduction, I'm, I'm trained as a veterinarian. I did a degree in animal science many years ago and was in private practice doing uh, almost entirely dairy cows. Uh, now as a faculty member at the University of Guelph, I'm still a real vet at least uh, some of the time doing ambulatory work. For the last little over 20 years, I've been a professor at University of Guelph running a research program. I'm very privileged to have a, a good-sized lab of, of graduate students from, from all over the world doing dairy cow field research projects, most of them out on commercial dairy farms, including the work that we'll talk about today. Right. To better understand the, the repro side of things, you, like you said, you worked closely with uh, two commercial Holstein herds. They were about 450 cows and they achieve very respectable production at a 3x or 3.2x for the robot herd. And I averaged it out and turned it into pounds instead of kilograms. And so your uh, young animals, first lactation animals were averaging a little over 23,600 pounds. And, and then your multi-paris were just shy of 30,000 pounds. So very respectable herds that are, are doing it. And Noting that they breed most of their cows off of activity pedometers and, of course, have a safety net of an off-sync program, but they were achieving an average pregnancy rate of 24% off of that. And so you're walking into a herd that's that's doing a great, great job, um, but still able to learn about pregnancy losses. So Let's talk a little bit about the data collection and the 400 and nearly 70 cows that were enrolled in this project. You took some blood samples and some uterine samples and all. Tell me, let's start with the blood. What, what were some different parameters that you were looking for in this transition cow uh, 30 days prior to, to giving birth through 60 days in milk? We started just before calving and really picked things up after calving where my research team, uh, in this case, led by a young veterinarian named Tony Bruinje. He was out on these two commercial farms, as you said, really well-managed places, generous participants in many of our research studies over the years. And he was on each farm twice a week and it really intensively monitoring those transition cows for 
you know, in a way, almost everything we could think of. So meaning <laughs> um, we had body condition scores, we knew about clinical diseases, mastitis, tough calvings, lameness, and so on, proactively doing lameness scores in terms of the blood samples through the postpartum period, looking at blood calcium in the first week postpartum, looking at BHB, beta-hydroxybutyrate, or ketosis through the first three weeks postpartum. Also in the first couple of weeks, looking at blood haptoglobin, which is a marker, a non-specific marker of inflammation, which, um, you know, slight spoiler alert, turned out to be a um, <laughs> one of the important um, variables that we were particularly interested in. And, and then as the cows went by week by week, we were characterizing, so their clinical health, but also their reproductive health with looking for pus discharge a month postpartum, doing uterine cytology to characterize endometritis or chronic smoldering inflammation. And then as the cows were heading out towards breeding time, uh, taking blood samples every two weeks to measure progesterone so that we could estimate if and when they had begun to ovulate, when they had returned to having heat cycles again. And then ultimately they went out to be bred primarily, as you said, off of activity monitoring with, with a backstop um, timed AI program with, with OVSYNC. So we were able to characterize these cows sequentially from kind of the earliest possible evidence, indirect evidence that they were mm -hmm. pregnant and that they continue to be pregnant based on the other blood markers of pregnancy. And then ultimately we were able to say, you know, did they get pregnant? Did they stay pregnant as a function of what their experience was as a fresh cow in terms of health, disease, markers of inflammation, and so on. Really amazing data set that you've captured here. Can we describe just a little more about the uterine disease side of things? How did you test the uterine health status and how did you document the different levels to differentiate a little bit bad versus real bad? Yep. So kind of the, the big buckets there were first um, metritis. So we're talking about a cow with a smelly discharge in the first week or two postpartum. So we were proactively looking for those with a diagnostic instrument called a MetraCheck. That's a little scoop for, for vaginal discharge. Um, so we were you know, actively going looking for cows with fetid or stinky foul smelling discharge in the first two weeks. So that characterizes metritis. We checked whether they had a fever, but whether they did or not, um, if they had that foul smelling discharge, that's metritis. And then at five weeks postpartum, we came back with that MetraCheck scoop, this time looking for small volumes of white or yellow pus discharge mm -hmm. coming from their uterus or their cervix. So that's characterized as PVD, purulent vaginal discharge, kind of just what the name sounds like. Those are the worst with the tail swats. Uh, you just really hate that. I feel sorry for yep. the team that was collecting that data. Sorry, carry uh -huh. on. <laughs> no, not at all. And, and, <sighs> and then last but not least, the um, least obvious, but still consequential form of uterine disease, again, at that five-week postpartum mark, where we would go and characterize endometritis. So literally mm -hmm. chronic low-grade smoldering uterine inflammation, which we diagnose by doing cytology. So you pass what essentially is the same as an AI rod, except instead of having a straw of semen in it, it has a little brush in it, same brushes as are used to do pap smears in women. 
And so you, you pass that in just like you were breeding a cow, roll it lightly on the, on the uterine surface, guard it, pull it back out, make a microscope slide, look at, look at that slide, and you can characterize the degree of inflammation hmm. um, to say, yep, yeah, this cow has endometritis or that cow doesn't. So those three uh, forms of uterine disease, metritis, pus discharge, and endometritis, um, were the things we looked at. And of course, a cow could have none of them, one of them, two of them, all three of them. Right. Um, and, and we kind of looked at those permutations and, and, and combinations. Yeah, that cytology brush, um, as I was reading through it, I, that's quite fascinating that you guys were able to see inside the uterus that you would not otherwise be able to see. So again, great, great job capturing every tiny little piece. Now, let's talk a little bit about the the blood progesterone levels. I know there was a that you captured the blood progesterone at different times yep. after they were inseminated. What were some of the observations or cut points that you really considered when looking at that hormone? So the, the gist of it is that we're measuring progesterone in the blood. And when a cow has resumed her estrous cycle and ovulated and formed a corpus luteum, that, that corpus luteum or CL secretes progesterone, which we can measure in the blood. And the conventional threshold is that if a cow has more than one nanogram per milliliter of, of blood or blood serum, that's consistent with her having a CL, a corpus luteum, and that's essentially proof that she has ovulated, that she is cycling. And so you can imagine by th at three weeks postpartum, um, mm -hmm. most cows have not started to cycle yet. Mm -hmm. That That's normal and expected. Conversely, you would hope and expect, well, you would wish that every cow has begun to cycle, you know, by the time she's getting out into the breeding period. But of course, they they don't all there's, I wish they would read the book, right? <laughs> it would only. be nice. Although to be honest, um, you know, because it's a pretty consistent or common problem, even the book might say that somewhere between 10 and 20% of cows have not dairy cows have not started to cycle by then. And, and therefore, you know, obviously, they're not going to be having heats or getting pregnant. So they're, they're going to need some help. But yeah, and, and to make a, a long story short, big picture, earlier onset of return to estrus, return to ovulation, earlier is better. I mean, mm -hmm. doing it at all is really important because they're not getting pregnant otherwise. Um, but other things being equal, sooner is better. And mm -hmm. that that's favorable for fertility. You bet. Okay. And so talk to me about how did you even know that they were pregnant at that day 19 to calculate the pregnancy loss? You know, if, if you just sort of zoom out a little bit about the earliest you could palpate a pregnancy is probably around 35 days. About the earliest you can see a pregnancy with an ultrasound scanner is 28 days or you know, maybe 26, but really not before that. So we're trying to go even earlier than that. And what happens is when, when the cow has an early pregnancy, so like when she's around 15, 16 days pregnant, so there's just this tiny little embryo in her uterus, that embryo releases a substance called interferon tau. And, and that is the chemical signal of early pregnancy from that tiny little embryo 
to the mother, to the cow to kind of say, Hey, I'm here. <laughs> um, right. Don't cycle back. Don't come back into heat. Don't lice your CL you're pregnant. Mm-hmm. And that interferon is not in any practical sense is not something you could measure with a blood test. Sure. However, um, it, it causes some changes in the reproductive tract. But there's this other little bit of cool, convenient biology that isn't something you could use in the field, but is something we can use in research. And that is that this interferon has some effects beyond the uterus. So for example, in white blood cells, immune cells that are in the cow's bloodstream, when they're exposed to interferon, this pregnancy signal, um, there are some genes inside these white blood cells that are sensitive to interferons. So they're called interferon-stimulated genes, ISGs. Mm -hmm. And those create footprints or markers. You you get differences in expression of these interferon-stimulated genes, which are kind of the, the footprints or the proof of exposure to ISG and that can only come from pregnancy. Exactly. And so it's this, it's this way you can pull some blood cells out of a cow, look at their gene expression. I may say that like, if there's nothing to it, it's, it's actually some pretty fancy science, but it's, it's well established. And that gives you a pretty darn good. It's not perfect, (laughs) but a pretty darn good indication as early as about day 18, 19, in our case, day 19, that the cow is or was at that moment mm-hmm. pregnant. Wow. Isn't she cool? It's not just the uterus that is pregnant. Those circulating signals in her bloodstream, in, in white blood cells. I mean, this is just so I cool. think so. Yeah. Dairy, dairy science and research. I just, I kind of get a little geeked out by it. I can't lie. Um, okay. And so you were analyzing the interferon tau. And uh, the minute I opened up this paper, guys, the link is at the bottom of the podcast. You really need to open up this paper. And in the middle of it is uh, figure one and two. Wow. Really incredible observations that you made. If you want to start maybe with figure one and describe the predicted probability of pregnancy and what your observations were between those animals that were healthy versus those that had a uterine disease. Yep. So again, here we we have these sequential samples starting as early as day 19 after AI and going out to 40 days after AI. And I would agree with you, there's some striking data here. So for example, um, just to describe it for those who don't have the paper in front of them, we estimate that healthy cows, cows that didn't have uterine disease as a fresh cow, 71% of them were pregnant at day 19. Mm-hmm. Um Conversely, cows that had lived through uterine disease in the postpartum period, so that's any of retained placenta, metritis, pus discharge, or endometritis, only 54% of them were pregnant at day 19. So I think there's, there's a couple of really interesting things here. Number one, especially among healthy cows, um, sperm meets egg and, and forms an, an embryo a lot of the time, 71% of those cows. Most of the time, yeah. Most, right? A a big majority. And yet, I mean, even in healthy cows, and and this isn't news, but even in healthy cows, there's then 
you know, sadly, a substantial loss such that by day 40, only 49% of healthy cows were still pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that's that's not news. We've 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 known for sure. a long time that that there's there's quite a bit of early embryonic loss. But what we're showing here, and again, it's, it's not for the very first time, but I think we're kind of moving the yardsticks ahead here. That problem of pregnancy losses between day nineteen and day forty is substantially worse in cows that live through uterine disease as a postpartum cow. So for example, we're going from 54% of those previously diseased uterine disease cows who were pregnant at day 19, dropping all the way down to 31% of them who are still pregnant at day 40. So again, even in healthy cows, there are substantial losses, but those losses are worse Mm -hmm. in cows that live through uterine disease and and already by kind of the earliest possible detection of pregnancy day 19 in this case there's already been substantial loss now is that because those cows never were pregnant in the first place like that you know sperm never met sure. egg or you know did they lose their embryo back at day you know 7 Six, or 10 or yeah. 12 or whatever mm-hmm. um i mean we we can't say that for for certain and it's it's probably a combination of of both of those things but the interesting thing remember say that cow with metritis that you know you found her she was smelly she looked off you treated her she got better right, right. she she didn't die she got better she recovered from her disease she's not stinky she's not sick anymore Yet, um, <laughs> there's going to be this long hangover effect where even if she comes into heat and you breed her and she gets pregnant, the likelihood of that embryo sticking around mm-hmm. it is substantially reduced. Diminished. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And like you were saying, I know, I know that this was, this has maybe been published before similarly, but seeing it here, concrete, black and white right here is just um, a visual reminder of how important it is to prevent these diseases, prevent your metritis and take, take close care. And that's how your management can really positively impact uh, the performance of your herd. Then moving on to figure two, to kind of prep a little bit for this, the background, of course, these farms that you were collaborating with, they were taking exceptional records and, you know, logging calving knees and retained placentas and milk fever, DAs, mastitis. And you guys were able to lump uterine disease versus non-uterine disease. And I know you've talked a lot about the the uterine disease side of things, but this figure too is talking about clinical disease. And so they were observed by the farm staff and again, categorized by day 19, 29, 33, and 40. Could you describe what did you see uh, when those cows experienced a clinical disease event? So this was kind of a very practical look at things where, you know, for example, doing that endometrial cytobrush thing, I mean, that, that that's fine for research, but that's probably never going to catch on in the field. So we wanted to be really pragmatic and say with using pieces of information that, that farmers would have ready to hand. Mm-hmm. Yes, no's. These are all things that are, if not routinely done, they're, they're the kind of the easily accessible. And so we found, you know, 
you could predict that disease is not good for subsequent fertility. But what we found are kind of two interesting things here, I think. Mm -hmm. The first one is that a cow living through a single clinical disease was not so bad. Mm-hmm. Their pregnancy per AI statistically at any of those time points was not different. So on average, ballpark cows have a, a reasonable resilience to one clinical disease. However, if they had more than one clinical disease, their probability of pregnancy really took a nosedive. So we're talking, for example, at let's go at day 40, Mm -hmm. cows that were healthy, no disease, or even one disease were 45 to 47% of those cows were pregnant 40 days after the first service. Mm -hmm. Whereas cows that had lived through more than one disease, their pregnancy was 19%, well less than half, like Mm -hmm. gone from quite decent, respectable to plummet, you know, really lousy. Um, the other thing, which is you know maybe a little more academic, but of, of interest, in this case, there was no difference, at least statistically, at day 19. In other words, mm-hmm. these losses were, were happening a little bit later than when we looked specifically at uterine disease. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, that's, you know, I'm not sure what you do with that as a farmer, but, but it is sort of interesting that um, these, these losses in these cows with more than one disease are kicking in, at least based on our data, later from day 19 going forward. Well, and I think as a farmer on the farm, this could be a strong motivation that if, you, if you've if you got a cow that's kind of struggling through the transition, we know, we know that she tends to spiral. But if you can break that spiral in early lactation and give her the support that she needs and minimize it down to just one clinical event, then, then you are definitely breaking that cycle and, and hopefully helping helping her settle because yeah there's subtle numeric differences but statistically it is not different if if she stubs her stubs her toe or or however you want to say just that one time um she she can get over it so right yep i love giving these uh listeners something that they can grab a hold of that they can have a positive impact in their herd very good when it comes to risk of pregnancy loss there were different factors uh, that fed into that. What what was the biggest um, observation that you had as far as the driving force for what predicts uh, pregnancy loss in your dairy herd? Yep. So if we look at the things, at least among the ones that we studied in this particular study, that sort of had the biggest impact or the biggest magnitude of effect on pregnancy losses, they tended to be related to uterine health, and in particular, to endometritis and PVD, purulent Mm -hmm. vaginal discharge. So those two more chronic uterine diseases, which I think makes sense. Like on one side, you might think, well, metritis, that's like a very obviously sick cow that that seems like a more severe disease, which on one hand it is, Mm -hmm. but it's also further away from breeding. And the cow, among other things, has a little more time to recover from that. Whereas cows that wind up with 
or still have uterine diseases at five weeks postpartum, that's now getting closer to breeding time. And so we're talking about effects of 15 to as much as 20 percentage points of difference in in pregnancy or or you know more losses less pregnancy so those really made substantial meaningful differences to the affected cows and i i should say too that you know those diseases those conditions affect 15 20% of cows so it's not like a, a bad thing but yeah it only you know, it's it's, it's a bad two. thing for the affected cows, but there's only a handful of them. So kind of, so what for the herd? Typically there's enough of these cows in a herd that it, it becomes a, so what for the herd as well. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, thinking about it, one out of five cows that you walk by in your, in yeah, your herd. And so exactly. all of a sudden yeah. it starts to amplify the impact. You bet. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, so, as we as we've talked about before, it's it's kind of a one two punch. They're, they're probably less likely to get pregnant or at least be pregnant by day 19. And then, you know, that's unfortunate and bad. And, and then it's sort of bad to worse. And then their losses are, are that much worse as well. So that's that's kind of the, the, the nasty one two punch. What do you think is really happening there as far as can you trace it back to maybe some inflammation having negative effects on on the process? Yeah, and and interesting. So this is this is beyond what we studied, but from some other work uh, that's been done primarily in Florida, but but other places as well. Really trying to drill into the mechanisms behind what we observed in this study, and you know, you could think, all right, if this cow's got this chronic smoldering uterine disease, well, well, that's you know, going to be not a nice place for sperm to transit through. That's not going to be a good environment for an embryo to arrive in and, and grow in and get established in. And that's surely true. But interestingly, it seems like actually the bigger effects are actually on the ovary. Um, so the cow having had an inflammatory disorder, either really early postpartum, be that obvious, like metritis, or okay. less obvious, like elevated blood haptoglobin, even if she's not clinically ill, and or this chronic smoldering uterine inflammation that we diagnose as endometritis, it turns out, or at least on current evidence, that the biggest effects are probably on the cow's ovaries and, and on her follicles and oocytes. So the eggs that she's going to ovulate weeks or even months in the future are affected by this inflammation that's happening nearby in their in the uterus but the ovaries are not immune to that on the contrary um, they may actually kind of be preferentially in negative sense of the word they, right, they may kind right. of really take take a hit from exposure to to this inflammation in the nearby uterus and because cow's eggs, oocytes, take a, at least a couple months to develop, right? that's why you have this long hangover oh, whereby, tragic. you know, the cow lived through this thing, say, in the first week postpartum or even in the first right. month postpartum, yet it's going to have effects on her fertility weeks, in fact, months. so far we know up to three months. Yeah. Later. 
damaged goods, you know, that, and, yeah. and the trouble about it is, is she's ovulating. So in the barn, you're thinking she's doing the right thing, mm -hmm. but in reality, that tiny little egg just is not gonna, it's not gonna perform yep. the way you want it to. It's yep. incredible. Really fascinating. Okay. Well, my favorite question to finish up with is uh, always that I ask every single podcast is what, what would you really like boots on the ground dairy producers to gain from this very informative project that you've completed? Um, I, I think a couple things. One, one is just that, that awareness that what happens to the cow in the transition period doesn't end there. I think sometimes, you know, we think, yeah, yeah obviously sick, fresh cows is bad. Everybody gets that. Um, but I think sometimes we would get the idea like, well, all right, but we got her through that, right? It's 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 over now. It was unfortunate right. that she had whatever problem she had, metritis or something else, but we treated her and now it's over. We turn the page. There, there's a month or two months of, of time in between. We turn the page, now we're into the breeding period, you know, fresh start, and away we go. And unfortunately, that's not true. She's the cow mm -hmm. is still on the page that got written for her when she was a fresh cow and and you know we can't necessarily undo or fix that we we can kind of help on the edges but but the single biggest thing we could do there is is that upstream solution the the, the true prevention and 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 i i get mm -hmm. it we're not going to prevent every problem but on the flip side every problem we prevent has a long-term payback it's not just about the milk or the inconvenience in at that time, it's this lingering effect that's going to go on for months relative to her fertility. So I, I think that's um, maybe a, just a bit of a headspace. If, if if anyone needs sort of an extra motivation to execute on on doing all the right things to support transition cows, um, that would be it. Well, Stephen, this has been very informative, and I want to thank you so much for your time. And listeners, I applaud you for taking time out of your day to illuminate what might be happening to your herd's early embryos in the depths of that uterus. And I've really enjoyed our conversation. This has been the October edition of the Dairy Science Digest, which is a monthly podcast project designed to bring the Journal of Dairy Science straight to your ears. We highlight peer-reviewed research articles in press because it's sound science that you can base your management decisions decisions around and provided to you by your University of Missouri dairy team. So be sure to like, share, and subscribe to get future editions straight to your cell phone. This is Reagan Blue with the Dairy Science Digest, and I hope you have a great day. <laughs>